Welcome to a Voices of Esalen Extended Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today's episode is part of a series of panels presented at the 9th Annual Blue Mind Summit at the Esalen Institute in the summer of 2019. The Blue Mind Summit is the brainchild of Dr. Wallace J. Nichols, whose stated mission is to create the new story of water and share it with the world. By connecting neuroscientists and psychologists with aquatic experts and artists, Dr. Nichols advocates for the health and well-being of people and the planet. He is currently Chief Evangelist for Water at Bowie Labs, a Senior Fellow at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, a Research Associate at the California Academy of Sciences, and Co-Founder of Ocean Revolution, an international network of young ocean advocates. He is also the author of the national bestseller, Blue Mind, published in 2014 to great acclaim. This year at Esalen, he partnered with Dr. Shauna Shapiro and Dr. Dan Siegel to explore blue mindfulness. With no further ado, here's his keynote address at the 9th Annual Blue Mind Summit. Oh yeah, my name's Jay, and uh, <laughs> um, I love turtles, and I like them, and I love them. I'm a marine biologist, I live up the coast uh, in uh, an area we call the Slow Coast. Uh, I wrote that book that we gifted to you on your way in called Blue Mind a number of years ago. Some of you uh, are familiar with it and some of you are com- completely new to it. I have to also, usually, usually my wife stops me from giving them away, so um, she wasn't at the door, so you, you guys got lucky this time. <laughs> kind of the first time, at least from the, the Blue Mind Summit's perspective, that we've really gone fully into the topic of mindfulness. Of course, it has entered in the conversations over the, the past nine years. But this is the first time that in this, this annual tradition that we've decided to explore uh, the practice and the science of mindfulness. While we were sitting quietly, listening, we could hear the sound of the ocean. We could also hear the sea lions barking. And we are literally at the confluence of freshwater mineral springs, the ocean, but also the fog and the clouds, also the water within us, also the, the water that we drink and the tea. My intention is we learn from each other and that we learn a lot and that we learn things that we can take uh, in, into our lives, into our families, into our, our practice, into, into our jobs and apply immediately for ourselves, for those around us and for the waters that give us life. So it turns out today is day 35 of something we call the Blue Mind Challenge, which kind of reflects on the the, the practice conversation this morning. Um, What we pay attention to is is what we grow, what becomes stronger, who we become. Uh, And every summer we do something called 100 Days of Blue or the Blue Mind Challenge. And we simply ask people to pay attention to their water, be mindful of their water daily as part of a, a daily practice. And what happens is we, we learn new habits. Uh, it becomes a new ritual. It becomes uh, a new activity to be mindful of our water, whether it's your ocean in the backyard or a creek or a lake or even the water you drink. So being more mindful of our water each day to create a, a new set of, of habits. So I just wanted to point out today uh, is day 35. Uh, when we get out on the water together with the people we love, there's a, a bonding that happens. When we learn new skills and activities together, it builds camaraderie, such as you know, those who teach uh, surfing uh, to people who uh, want to acquire that skill at any point in their lives for whatever reason. Sometimes we're in the water and we interact with the wildlife, and that takes it to a whole other level. It goes, it goes from the self, the me, to the we very, very smoothly and cleanly. If you've ever been on the boat, on a boat with the dolphins in the bow, has anybody ever been on a boat? Yeah, wow. Lucky people you are. Uh, everybody moves to the bow, hopefully everybody except the captain, and uh, there's smiles on everyone's face and the, the happiness uh, stays, even after the dolphins decide to leave. Uh, even in the cities, you, your water may be an urban waterway, such as uh, Barton Springs in Austin, maybe one of the, the many, many thousands of lakes uh, around the continent, around the world, that you know, reflect the seasons back to us, they reflect ourselves back to us. Sometimes your water is frozen, 
uh, the three states of water, the three phases, solid, liquid, and gas. Um, maybe your, your water is all about just chillaxing, you know, just getting out there and saying, I'm just tuning out, turning everything off, and I'm um, you know, decompressing, as they say. Or maybe your water is just right here. Uh, you just had a, a, a breakthrough uh, insight from this conversation here at Esalen. Uh, maybe you like uh, your water is really you know, more the domesticated kind. Uh, Mr. Jack Black, he would say his water is his bathtub. His puppy likes to hang out with him when he, when he lounges and does his hair. Um, and then sometimes our water is, is really the tap water. The, um, the good old-fashioned way of, of drinking water predates all of those bottles that we, we love to use these days. Back in the old days, we stood in line, turned the knob, got refreshed. We were the king or queen of the whole school when we got that, that spot. But the point is, this is not just an ocean conversation. It's a water. It's a blue conversation. No matter where you are uh, around the world, across our country, you're really never that far from some kind of water. And even in the desert, you know, we have springs and creeks and rivers and some lakes. So it's, it's important to kind of keep that in mind, that this is not just a, a, a coastal conversation or a Great Lakes conversation. It's, it's for everyone. So when I answer that question, what's your water, I think of a person. I think of my, my late father, my adoptive father, who taught us to swim, taught us to dive. And my mom had a, a lifelong, still does, fear of water. So it was always up to my dad to get us in the water. And I, I learned, I fell in love with water. I can remember this moment at 11 years old so clearly. But at that age, I was really in love with turtles. Uh, not so much mountains or, or pack mules, um, but turtles. Uh, so I have a uh, kind of obsession with, with sea turtles. And I'm, I'm going to go on a little digression off of uh, blue and off of mindful uh, mind and fullness. And, and I'm going to talk about turtles, if, if that's all right. Uh, I asked a few people, and they thought it would be OK to talk about turtles at Esalen, so here we go. First turtle I tracked as a grad student was named Adelita. And I'll make a long story short here. We put a transmitter on her back and released her, and she'd been in captivity for 10 years in Baja in a tank about a quarter the size of this tent for 10 years. She grew up, reached maturity in captivity, and we released her. And as she swam away, um, so there's some biological interest here, but there's this, this kind of powerful metaphor she swam and she pauses right about there, right there, as if to say, where's the wall? I've lived in this tank for a decade, and there's been a wall about right there for 10 years. So her brain caused her to pause in response to a wall that didn't exist, an imaginary wall, habituation, perhaps. So I don't really know what turtles think, although I've studied them a lot. I'm not going to claim uh, to speak turtle or think turtle, but... She imagined this wall. It caused her to pause, and then she continued to swim. On the other side of that imaginary wall was the rest of her journey, which unfolded over the next 368 days. She swam from Mexico, from Baja California, to Japan. It took 368 days to swim 7,000 miles over the wildest, deepest wilderness our planet has to offer, apparently alone. But nobody's ever alone. She had a transmitter on her back, and millions of us were looking at her every single day. This turtle story is, is reiterating the, the stories of mindfulness, the stories of self or lack of self, uh, these, these insights from, from neuropsychology and from the practices that we're, we're talking about this weekend. For me, everything always comes back to turtles. I know, maybe, maybe not be the case for you, but I see the whole world through a... Uh, a turtle-colored lens, if you will. So this turtle made it home to Japan. We lost her track there in Isohama. Uh, her fate, we, we would say, is inconclusive, although there's a chance that she uh, was caught in a, in a squid net. So that's the sad version of, of the story. But in actuality, we're not sure what happened to her. But she left us with a whole bunch of science, a whole bunch of data, a whole bunch of knowledge about the North Pacific Ocean. We shared her data online while she was swimming across the ocean. And millions of kids, and back in 1996, in the brand new thing called the internet, started tracking Adelita and learning about her journey and following her and learning math by predicting when she would reach, if she did go all the way across, when she would reach there, using algebra to predict her journey. And we were told not to share that data online in real time because somebody would steal our data. You've heard that in academia all the time. 
So what we did was we shared it <laughs> wildly and immediately in real time. And lo and behold, people did use the data, but it wasn't stealing, it was sharing. And they were doing things that helped us understand more. They, they were smarter or more clever in different ways. And teachers used the data to teach. Art teachers, poetry teachers, science teachers, geography teachers, and kids all over the world got to follow Adelita for, the, for that year. This kind of work led me to work with, very closely with turtle hunters who were at the time considered the enemies of nature, the, the reason why turtles were going extinct. But in fact, they were, we saw them as potential allies. And by collaborating with them and inviting them into the conversation and sharing uh, our interest in these animals, we began to form ideas and strategies to make sure these animals didn't go extinct. So tracking this turtle, working with the turtle hunters, led me to um, my interest in the natural world, led me to many of my best friends, led me to many adventures. And so from, from a, a young scientist perspective, I learned a lot through this lens of the sea turtle. But what happened is I started to understand that to save these animals was more than just understanding turtle biology. It was understanding our interconnection with the turtles. And that that interconnection went beyond consumption, went beyond appreciation, it went more deeply in, into our emotional connections. And not just for turtle lovers and turtle huggers like me, but also for turtle hunters uh, and for uh, people who made a living hunting and selling these animals. And so as I think fast forward, we're able to bring the black sea turtle back from the brink of extinction, uh, not just by tracking them and studying their DNA and what they eat, but by better understanding the human connection to these animals and to each other. And that kind of necessarily led me to another part of campus where um, people were studying human behavior, the sociologist, the anthropologist, the psychologist, the neuroscientist. And I became curious about what they might be able to offer to us working on behalf of the natural world. The old way of understanding the, the mind and the brain was the, the black box model. And Dan can correct me as I go, if I, if I go off, off the rails here as a turtle biologist speaking neuroscience. And that, that model, basically, you could stimulate someone and then see what they did, but you couldn't really see what was going on on the inside. But in fact, you could, but you had to wait till later when you could uh, have their brain when they were done using it, if you get my drift. And so that's how neuroscience clunked along for hundreds of years was by looking at anomalies, uh, uh, injuries perhaps, um, changes in the brain uh, post-mortem. And then things really broke, broke through when we got the technology to look inside while we were still using our brains, able to do brain scans and use EEGs and, and other ways of measuring our neurological activity uh, in situ, in motion, while active, while still alive, uh, interacting with each other and the world around us. We began to learn that the brain at rest and the brain, the active brain, are, are, are different. Simple ideas you know, going way back. Uh, and this technology and these neuroimaging began to give us insights. Neurochemistry helped us understand how neurochemicals and, and various kinds of neurohormones participate in making us um, ourselves and how we interact with each other and the world around us. And when I met neuropsychologists, I learned that no, it is actually a hard science and sometimes even the hardest science in the room and really interesting and incredibly useful to understanding our relationship with the natural world and each other and solving big problems. Just understanding that there's this, this whole suite of chemicals that are, are the underpinnings of our behaviors is so important and of course, in the last 20 years or so, the, the science of mindfulness led by, by you know, people like Dr. Shapiro, Shauna and her colleagues has really exploded and changed the way um, we think about mindfulness and meditation and relaxation. But fascinating research that's informing uh, how we understand ourselves and a whole array of books related from music to economics to neuroplasticity and, and beyond, creativity and so on. Nobel Prizes being one in applied neuroscience uh, for understanding 
uh, something as simple as how do you find your car when you've only parked it in that parking lot one time? You know, there's neuroscientists studying how we make mental maps. And so the, really the, the take home, and, and I'll stop on, on my neuroscience there and, and uh, leave, it, leave it to Dan, uh, is that we are living in what many have described as the, the golden age of neuroscience, of neuropsychology. Um, our understanding of how a, a human behavior is evolving and changing, and we're gaining these really useful insights that are both fascinating, but also incredibly useful. And that's kind of why we're here uh, today. Think about it. Having a, an owner's manual uh, to your own brain uh, is kind of a, a new concept. There's a whole wave of, of new books that are, are kind of luring us back into nature, not just the ocean, but into the forest, and saying, you know, being in the water, being in the woods is really good for us. It's not all about, about you know, fear of sharks or fear of the dark or fear of the unknown. And this is a field that's emerging uh, that I refer to as neuroconservation. Conservation biology uh, meets neuropsychology. What can we learn uh, from Shauna and Dan and their colleagues about piecing things back together in the natural world, about solving the biggest ecological problems that we face? So from an from a ecological side, I went to grad school in economics and uh, evolutionary biology and wildlife ecology, and we were taught these are the three E's, the ecological, the economic, and the educational value of healthy nature. But there's the fourth E, the emotional value. That I, was never I went to the 24th grade, and it never came up. I talk to students now, and they're not learning about the emotional value of nature very often. Here and there, in some, some more progressive programs, it's happening. But I think that really needs to be the first E at the top, because it probably is the basis uh, of sustainability. I think emotional wellness is the driver of all sustainability. You probably will not achieve sustainability of any kind without a, a solid basis in emotional health. And so a little backdrop there. We're experiencing kind of some, some pretty alarming levels of anxiety and stress in our country. And the, the American Psychological Association does an annual report on stress in America. And they're saying that both adults and young people are experiencing anxiety and stress. Uh, as a dad of two daughters, um, I pay attention to some of the literature on what that means for our young people. And it's not all great. Uh, stressing out kids and adolescents is, is not a, a great thing for us to be doing. Uh, social media and beyond are contributors. And so we're seeing uh, these high rates of depression and burnout in kids. Stress is connected to our physical health. The majority of diseases, disorders, and illnesses are connected to, directly or indirectly, to stress. Right? They're exacerbated by and even caused by stress. Uh, but we keep loading it on, right? You know, society keeps giving us more activities, more information, more great ways to stay connected, more hours of more of the days. It's harder and harder to disconnect. So everywhere I go and talk about Blue Mind, I see people are self-medicating in ways that are not helpful. They're dealing with their anxiety, their stress, their pain in ways that are making more anxiety, stress, and pain, in fact. And we've got various kinds of crises uh, related to various kinds of addictions. At the extreme, you've got post-traumatic stress, people of you know, all kinds of careers and activities and experiences. Uh, maybe the majority of us in this room have experienced it in some form or another. So that's the, the red mind conversation. I'm not going to linger there because I can already feel the vibe going like way, way low. But if you stay in red mind too long and your life is stuck there, it eventually leads to what I call gray mind, burnout, the ashes, right? So you, you get burnt out, you feel, you feel depressed, disinterested, disconnected. Red mind is very useful. The fight or flight response is, is powerful and really useful. Gray mind is not very useful at all. So let's go back to the ecological story. Here we come along, we're well-meaning environmentalists, and we've got a stressed out um, audience, and we come along and we stress them out even more. We give messages of crisis and doom and extinction. Uh, we use tools like fear um, very well. It's our, our favorite tool, perhaps, for trying to motivate people. Anger sometimes, as needed, so fear and anger. Uh, shame, and we talked about guilt and shame earlier, and Sean explained how that is not so useful. It is not a, an activating strategy for
for getting cooperation, collaboration, empathy, and solving problems. But those are our favorite tools. We love facts, too. We love to bombard people with lots and lots of statistics and bore them, uh, not, not to death completely, but nearly to death, and then scare them a little more and add some more shame. So that's been our environmental movement strategy for a long time. Uh, we forget about things like gratitude, simple thank you like you mean it gestures, building trust, again, that, that oxytocin hit, teaching scientists that you need to build trust to, in the room before you scare the heck out of everybody. It's kind of a, a better strategy. The L word, saying love in public, uh, as in the scientific community is very rare to talk about love unless you're a love researcher, and, and that's qu even quite rare. Uh, and talk about wellness, the wellness benefits of healthy nature. Right? So again, these are, these are simple ideas, perhaps, uh, in this community gathered here today, but these are not ideas that you hear in the way most environmental messaging is communicated. You hear it from... Companies like Coca-Cola, they always are selling joy, peace, freedom, and happiness. That's kind of their, their mantra. Uh, they tell us that if you open their bottle, happiness will come out, when in fact happiness comes from somewhere other. This won't be a surprise, I don't think, but happiness comes from somewhere uh, other than carbonated sugar water. All right, I'm just going to... Might be shocking, but uh, put that out there. So let's bring it back to the, the research on Blue Mind. Most of the research began in the realm of green space, looking at uh, terrestrial nature, because that's our bias. And so I, I wrote Blue Mind and studied Blue Mind to kind of try to balance things out and say, hey, 71% of the planet is covered with water. We, we keep leaving that out. And so it turns out that blue space, another, another phrase that refers to water, like green space, is good for our, our emotional health. And the research just keeps coming uh, like, like waves after waves on the beach and piling up. And every study just kind of reiterates this idea, nature, healthy nature, healthy water, healthy forests are good for our bodies and our minds. This uh, recent uh, meta study, uh, systematic review of all the quantitative and some of the qualitative studies that have been done on blue space concludes that yes, water is medicine for emotional health, and we need more research, which is what researchers always conclude in every single paper ever written, concludes we need more research. So this is a, a really old idea. It goes way back. Uh, all recorded history, all cultures, all spiritual traditions have this idea that water is life, water is medicine, encoded in their sacred texts, in their teaching, in their traditions. You go all the way back uh, as far as you can in works of art, and prose and poetry, and you find this message deeply embedded as well. The emotional valence of art, of music, of poetry, of prose. So it was the job of the artist to depict the awe of nature and bring it into the cities. Great poets like Tom Waits and Bruce, Bruce Springsteen sang, wrote, because down, I won't sing this for you, Jersey Girl, you may know the, the tune, because down the shore everything's all right. Such a great lyric. But why, how, what is it about the shore that makes everything all right? At least everything feels all right for that moment. When, you know, you and your baby down at the Jersey Shore, if you've been there with your baby or your honey, you know exactly what they're singing about. Carlos Argentino, en amar la vida es más sabrosa, en amar te quiero mucho más. At sea, life is sweet, sweeter. In the sea, I love you more. How does that happen? Like, how can the sea do that? Rainer Rilke. Again, just that, that cleansing aspect. Poets and artists and spiritual leaders have always known this. The great Pablo Neruda, another poet. We dissolve in the ocean like a grain of salt, and the water doesn't know. Right? These powerful symbolic metaphors. John Lennon, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. All right, switching gears a little. Corona, they've built a... Uh, and a global empire on the back of pretty bad beer uh, by selling Blue Mind concept, right? It feel, all of their ads evoke this, this sense of peace and mild, mildly meditative sense of wellness by the sea. And then they say, like, here's, you know, here's a bad beer in a clear bottle. If you're a beer fan, you know why, why I reference the clear bottle. Nesty plunge, you know, that's how you enter the water. Um, keep, if you watch any TV and you see these pharmaceutical ads, 
they're using so much water imagery. And usually it appears when they tell you all the side effects and all the bad news. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, I, I study this stuff. I mean, I'm like, there it is again. And my wife's like, come on. You, like, they all do it, OK? We believe you. You don't have to point it out every time. Subaru, they're selling cars with these beautiful 30-second surf narratives about you know, grandsons and grandpas sneaking off and going surfing. They're using that to sell cars. Uh, so this is really what we're talking about, this, this dopamine that, that we experience. And of course, the oxytocin starts on the, you know, the, the neurological cocktail that, that we get from nature, from spending time in nature, from you know, uh, immersing ourselves in the forest, in the sea, in the lakes, in the rivers, uh, especially with those we love. Right, here's another, another reference, and I'll go through these quickly. The Hollywood is on to this. Shawshank Redemption, remember that one? They won a bunch of Academy Awards. The last scene of Shawshank Redemption. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it's been in my dreams. I hope. More recently, Moonlight Academy Awards. I think that Water should have won at least a nomination for Best Supporting Actress uh, in this film. She was powerful performance. Oh, completely overlooked. Never, actually, Water has never been nominated for an Academy Award, but <laughs> she will someday, I promise. More recently, The Shape of Water. That's a lot of Academy Awards there. And then even more recently, Star is Born. And there's that scene where Jackson is in rehab and Allie comes to visit him. And she says simply, how are you doing? She says, I've been swimming. She says, that's good. Right? Tragic ending of the film, but he, in rehab, there are all these swimming scenes, and that's what he was doing. He was getting his blue mind on, his blue mindfulness, and trying to cope with the struggle that he had with addiction. Ancient idea that our water is our medicine. This goes all the way back. The people who occupied this space where we are knew about blue mind. They didn't call it that. They just simply called it their medicine. And it was the natural world, it was the water, it was the forest, it was the animals that they coexisted with. I want to I run relatively quickly through the seven ages of water framework. And apologies in advance, strap, strap on your seatbelt maybe and uh, lock the doors and, and um, put your your mindfulness at bay for a moment. I guess that might be the, just get ready. So birth, it all starts. It starts 9.21 months after conception or so. Boom, there you are. You kind of come kind of out in bright lights, big city, into the air world from the water world. All you've known up until that point is pure water, water world. If you were a water, if you were a water birth or water baby, then you extend that, that water experience a little bit longer until you take your first breath of, of actual air. And there is a growing interest in, in water birth, in water labor, uh, if a baby is not, in fact, born in water, but the labor occurs in water for a variety of very supportive reasons. But using water throughout pregnancy, just as things, gravity starts to take its toll, is a pretty good idea. Start exercising in the water. So we could spend a, a whole chapter on, on that, but I'm not the guy to teach that class, it turns out, uh, on birth. I'm a turtle biologist. <laughs> But there are books about water parenting, so early, early life experiences with babies and parenting. So it's the second age we call play. We had a great conversation over breakfast about the science of play. It turns out that play is really good for us. In fact, kids that don't play are kind of getting into some trouble with that, neurologically, developmentally. Um, it's play is so important. And not play on a screen and not virtual play, but you know, our real play, RP reality, you know, not virtual play. The two-dimensional kind needs to give way as often as possible to the three-dimensional outdoor kind. Water enhances our play all the time. So I like to say, if, you know, balloons are fun, but water balloons, bring it, bring it. Slides are, are great, but water slides, you know, parks are cool. Water, you can kind of make up your own list. Just add water to any situation and it usually becomes more playful. It gives us a sense of hope. It gives us something to look forward to as kids and as adults. It's a place we can build trust in ourselves. We can build trust in each other. And we can build trust in the non-human lives that we encounter while we're playing in water. K 
kids that don't get to play, who live maybe particularly traumatic uh, childhoods, when they do get into the water, it it's really can be a, a great release and a relief. There's a group up in Wisconsin that has introduced the groups of at-risk kids to the rivers up there. And this young woman said, when I got in the river and I learned to snorkel and I was given a camera, it was the first time in my life I felt a sense of peace. And when I heard her say that, it broke my heart. Because imagine, imagine a childhood with no peace, no sense of peace. And then imagine, here's the good news, imagine discovering a sense of peace in the river, in your backyard, and learning that you can swim in it now that you have the skill set. Groups like Chad Brown's Soul River up in Portland, inner city kids going out and learning to fly fish. He's a veteran. He goes out and help, it helps him with his post-traumatic stress, but veterans helping kids connect with nature. Confidence. We build confidence when we play. Kids that learn to surf over in Monterey from Central Valley, perhaps they never even have seen, seen the ocean, but they learn to surf and, and it builds their confidence. It isn't even about surfing so much as it's about you know, confidence that they're building. A sense of freedom that we get when we're in the water. Even swimming last night uh, together in, in the pool, there's just this really nice sense of peace and freedom and camaraderie and connection, very playfulness. Um, Naoki Higashida wrote this great book about his experience with autism. And in there, he says that in the water, he feels free and happy. And in fact, it's the singular place where he feels that way. And he feels, as he would say, more like us in, in that sense of freedom. For him, his water is medicine. So the encouragement here is that we continue to play, that we play and play and play as adults. We take, get, make sure our children are playing and all the way through the end of our lives that we continue to play and to learn. Okay, the third age here I call the lover. It's where we dream big dreams and we fall in love with ourselves, with our place, uh, with each other. It's, you know, we talked about mind wandering, you know, 40% of our time spent sort of letting our minds wander. Sometimes that's a really good thing. If we're, we're not letting our mind wander into the future, we don't dream. And if we don't dream, it's, it's a different life. And so allowing time and space to let your mind wander, water can be a vehicle to help with that and encourage that. It's also a place, at least in the romantic sense, for privacy. Privacy, privacy for yourself, but also privacy for interpersonal relationships. It's a place we build awe and wonder. And we've seen from, from earlier today and, and, and other research that that sense of awe and wonder helps us to build more empathy and compassion. So it does that in our brain. It helps our, the parts of our brain responsible for empathy and compassion to do that. So now the science of awe is actually sinking into the environmental world as a, as a tool for encouraging restoration and, and uh, protection. This young man, he was a, a turtle hunter, and I snapped a photo of him with permission after he saved that sea turtle from an, a net, and we tagged it and released it. And I said, Alejandro, is it okay if I share this photo with my friends um, at places like Esalen? He said, yes, please. And I asked him, what, how are you feeling? And he said, I felt really connected to that animal that I saved. And his habit had been to pull them out of a net and then sell them in the black market. Just that shift, you know, in that one, one act of building a new habit of tagging and releasing these animals. I thought it was a sweet, a sweet moment. So this switch from the me to the we that empathy helps us achieve is, is really important because I don't need to explain the, the me culture that, that is sort of pervasive and, and taking off. Water can be a backdrop to our romance. I heard uh, a reference to children conceived near or in the water. Um, we don't get, that might be in the realm of too much information, I think, if, but we could go there and I bet there are more than one, uh, more than one story of children conceived near, in, on, or underwater among those of us gathered in this room. I'll raise my hand to that one there. It's almost a cliche that you know, people want to be by the water at these important moments in their lives these formative moments when they're falling in love with each other, when they're falling along, uh, uh, in love with their ideas, and when they're falling in love with special places. Okay, so the fighter. We, we then fight for what we love. We fight for who we love. We fight for the places we love. And I mean that in the, in the most positive sense. People like Dr. Sylvia Earle, 
who has in her 80 plus years has fought for our ocean on behalf of all of us. People like Manager Joe Green fighting for her river, the Hudson. People like Alice Brown Otter, young indigenous woman fighting for her waters and reminding the world that water is life. This is a, maybe a little surprising. Steph Curry, um, almost fighting and winning for his team, the Warriors, uh, on, on the, the greatest basketball stage. But he goes weekly and floats in salt water like other elite athletes. They go back to their womb, if you will. They go back to their home and they get in pods like this on a weekly basis to keep their head in the game, to keep their cool, to keep their red mind at bay. Because all fighters, all warriors know that humility is important. Without it, you, you will get wiped out. Not only will you lose, you will get destroyed. And nature reminds us every time of our humility, how small we are. The waves and the mountains and the rocks and the trees, they humble us over and over again. This is Martin Pollock returned, from, returned to the UK from fighting in Afghanistan with one of his arms and neither of his legs. He said he planned to be a blob on a stool in a pub in Cornwall for the rest of his life until he got hooked up with a surf therapy program. And now he's a surf ambassador. But he's not just a surf ambassador, he's an ocean warrior. And he would say, I'm, I'm trained to win, and now you've got me on your ocean team. And now I fight for the ocean that gave me my life back. Right? That's what we need. We need to understand that these waters, these forests can heal us. And, then, and we love them for that. And we fight for them. And we fight and we win for them which means we put them back together and we fix what's broken. Groups like Heroes on the Water use kayak fishing. And if you've ever been kayak fishing, you know that it's a little bit of kayaking, very little fishing, and a lot of sitting quietly, mindfully looking at water. If they called it kayak mindfulness, many of the veterans wouldn't sign up. So it's called kayak fishing. <laughs> but essentially, it's, it's, uh, that's what it is. Groups like Force Blue, uh, understanding that it's a healing journey for the coral reefs and for the men and women who form Force Blue. The ocean teaches us resilience, helps us come back again and again. Our waters teach us resilience, our rivers and our lakes. Next age, this is the, you know, the third of the three middle adult ages, the justice. So we, we fall in love, we fight for what we love. And now, most of us are in this age. We're expected to carry the responsibilities to be creative on demand and to solve problems without fail. That's the expectation as a parent, uh, as a leader in your, in your work, as, your leader, as a leader in, in um, your place of worship, perhaps in, at your kids' schools, and on and on. That's the expectation that you, you are res a responsible adult that gets things done creatively. Achieving the balance required to do that every day from the moment you wake to the moment you fall asleep, it will involve, obviously, taking good care of ourselves, taking good care of those around us. We need to find ways to relax, whether that's going into nature or finding you know, music that helps us to relax, or it's just learning to meditate, sitting mindfully, quietly. People are on to this, right? So re the real estate business, if you, if you look on Zillow and you compare the front row to just the second row in Del Mar, California, just south of here, you'll find that there's a 1,000% premium between the front row and the second row. So the second row is a 10-second walk to the beach. The front row is on the beach, 1,000% premium. So people are kind of on to this, and it's creating this pressure. I think we need to also recognize that we need public blue space that allows everyone in the second row to the thousandth row to get their blue mind on, to be able to come to the edge of the lake, the river, the ocean, and enjoy it, and have it not be walled off by those who can afford that premium. Cities like Pittsburgh are, are restoring their waterfronts, and as they restore their waterfronts, it's fixing their economy, it's changing the ecology, but guess what, the emotional health of the people who work and live in downtown Pittsburgh is improving. Even fountains in, in the big cities, in front of the Wrigley Building in New York City, where I'm from, people sitting during their lunch break on, on a wall that was not designed to be a bench by the architects, in fact, but they shimmy out there and just hang out by, by the water. 
Portland, Oregon, a great water city. If you walk around Portland, you're, you're always going to be not, not just the Willamette River, but the bubblers, the water fountains, as well as these big urban, urban fountains. The aquariums in our cities, they serve a purpose more than education and more than rehabilitation of, of injured wildlife. They serve as an emotional resource. So we know that the, from research in the aquariums that it is helpful, it is medicine. Standing in front of water, watching these fish swim around is calming. It's a place we go for solitude. And in a world where solitude is a diminishing resource, that's incredibly important. And now I just want to touch on this study. Uh, Tim Wilson and others at the University of Virginia looked at college students and their ability to do solitude. And they found something that's kind of alarming. Two-thirds of young men left alone in a room with no stimulation other than their own minds chose to administer an electrical shock to themselves voluntarily rather than endure the pain of solitude. During a six to 15 minute trial, one of those kids shocked himself 180 times. That, that's called an outlier, and he was not included in the results of this study, but he is mentioned by the researchers. I think he was probably referred to um, health services as well in, in, the, uh, in the community at University of Virginia. Water is a source of creativity. It's problem solvers. We need that creativity to be flowing as, as much as possible. The late, great Oliver Sacks said something about being in the water and swimming, which alters my mood, gets my thoughts going as nothing else can. And he had a lot of big thoughts and shared them with the world in lots of ways. He said he, swimming in lakes and pools, he would keep a, a legal pad on the bench or on the deck so he, when he had an idea, he could hop out and jot it down. And sometimes the legal pad got wet and the person who had to transcribe his legal pad had a hard time because of the smearing of the water. But that was just a, um, an unfortunate sort of artifact of, of getting your creativity from water. And Pharrell Williams, you're familiar with Pharrell Williams, the singer and designer and, and activist. He says he gets his best ideas, his best songs from the water. Okay, second to last age, ebb and flow is the age where we, we start to really feel the effects of gravity on land. We start to slow down. Uh, it might be our joints first. It might be maybe a little lower back stuff. And it can hit us at any point in our lives. It doesn't always come chronologically late in life. So getting in the water is incredibly therapeutic not just but for our bodies, but also for our minds and our spirits and for our attitude. Getting out of the um, facilities, whatever they may be, and getting to the edge of the water by any means possible. You may have to have your oxygen on board, but let's do it. This is a hospital in Israel in the basement. They've got a pool. And any moment of the day, you go there and there's a line of wheelchairs, each wheelchair representing a patient in the pool. And the woman who runs the program started by getting all of her colleagues, all of the doctors and therapists in the hospital, in the pool with her. And she, she showed each of them what she does with patients. And they started to prescribe aquatic therapies as part of a whole range of injuries, diseases, disorders, and treatments. Um, virtual water, virtual oceans, virtual nature can help us calm ourselves and help, help us to manage our pain. This young woman at UCSF, what is she doing with that VR headset? Well, she's swimming with dolphins. She's swimming with whales. So those of you who have done uh, the waterproof VR with Ando know what that insight is, what that may feel like, and how if virtual nature, virtual water can help us manage our pain, think of what real water may be able to do. Doesn't need to be through a screen, doesn't need to be indoors. Health benefits are swimming are well-documented and expanding, and not just the physical, but also the emotional health throughout our lives, but especially as gravity starts to take its toll, getting in the water and moving. And it isn't just lap swimming. It can be walking, moving weights, doing all kinds of activities that you can do in a gym, in the pool. So the health and wellness benefits of water are being studied most extensively by the University of Exeter and University of Plymouth, as Lizzie mentioned last night in the UK. And I encourage you uh, to look up the Blue Health Program at the University of Exeter. If you could put it in a pill, somebody would have, but it doesn't come in a pill. All right, this is the last and least popular of the seven ages, but um, of any group I've spoken to, 
I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm more excited to talk about water and death right now than I ever have been because I think um, in your minds, in your hands, in your creativity, this is going to be very useful. So we've all, um, we're all going to die, yes, and we've all been part of the death of our loved ones, expectedly or unexpectedly. We've, we've been there at you know, this age. We've all, we've all experienced that. Um, water and death have always gone together symbolically throughout history, metaphorically, the river sticks and so on. It really isn't ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I think it's water to water, in fact. When my, my adoptive father passed away, um, his memorial naturally, instinctively was held by the water. He lived in the desert and they have this funny lake in the desert in Fountain Hills with the world's tallest fountain. It's very strange in the Sonoran Desert, but it was the draw for the memorial. My mom and I hiked up onto the mountain weeks later overlooking, and that was the first time she smiled through her grief, was looking back down on, on the lake and the fountain uh, in, in the desert. That connection that water can help us achieve is important in those moments of closure and of ending and of, of grief and of loss. It can facilitate reconciliation. Something in the water last night, just talking, that it created a, a, a flow, if you will. Um, and, I, and I've experienced that personally and seen it in many ways over the years. So here's a, a spiritual reference to one of you know, the sacred texts. Um, I'm going to paraphrase and pardon for my, my French in advance, but the 23rd Psalm basically says, when the shit's hitting the fan, get your ass down to the water, saith the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Can I get an amen? <laughs> if you read the 23rd Psalm, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. This is the red-minded mode right there. Like, the valley of the shadow of death is pretty red mind. What do you do when you're experiencing that? Ancient wisdom says, 3,000 years ago, King James wrote, go to the water, soothe your soul. Go to the water, soothe your soul. When your red mind is all-encompassing, go to the water, it will soothe your soul. All spiritual traditions, literally and metaphorically, have this water connection, this water-spirit connection. In fact, the Dalai Lama has the word ocean in his name twice. Uh, the word consilience has come up a lot this weekend and literally means a jumping together. And you know, Eo Wilson has a great book called Consilience, a great biologist, highly recommend, check it out. But this idea of jumping together uh, it's kind of scary, of course. And when you're jumping into the unknown, when you're jumping into the sea of possibility, um, there, there's some fear involved in that. But when we jump together and we hold hands and we do that jumping, it's fun. Uh, and when there's water involved, there's, there's this nice expected landing. So if we're jumping together in this consilience into the sea of possibility, wow, like, let's do it, you know. Uh, strip off all the old stuff Eve. and let's and jump. jump. Yeah. <laughs> the last piece here, none of this all goes away. Oh, this whole concept of blue mind goes away if you don't have access. And I'll go through quickly the physical pollution and perceptual barriers to our access. So this is kind of where the rubber hits the road. It's nice to talk about Blue Mind and Blue Mindfulness, but how do we share it with everyone? Sometimes there are signs that say, don't come here, it's dangerous. Sometimes the gates are locked and closed and privatized, even if the beaches, in fact, are public, you can't get to them. Sometimes pools are closed because of budgets or other reasons. Sometimes literally the water in your home creates fear in young people, in older people, it creates a, a culture of fear related to water because it turned the tap and it's dangerous. Sometimes we have oil spills and the beach that you used to go to and play in to soothe your soul becomes a source of fear 
and anger and sadness and pain and disgust and even guilt. Sometimes we go to the beach with the intention of, of playing and relaxing and we end up doing beach cleanups all day, which my daughter Julia says are disgusting and unjust, but she does them anyway. It's a different day if you spend it doing a beach cleanup. And the research shows that those experiences can rob us of the psychological benefits that the water would have conveyed. So we are literally in a war on plastic, on oil, on pollution, on that economy. And it's a, it's a war of attrition in some ways. It's a war of creativity in some ways. It's a struggle for us to keep moving the economy forward in a way that is more blue-minded, more blue-mindful, that gets us off of the petroleum-based and onto the, the clean energy economy. Perceptual barriers can keep people out of the water. There are groups of people who are told, you can't surf, you can't swim because of the color of your skin or your gender, where you live. Depending on where you grew up, you may have experienced that. We heard about Harvey Welch last night in his work to open a public swimming pool for all people. And another perceptual barrier is technology. So I see, you probably see people, the gate is open, the water is clean. There's access to the beach, yet people are not mindfully at their water. They're mindlessly on their technology, on, on having a virtual experience that takes them right out of that place. So I would like to propose that we remove this smartphones and replace them with smarter turtles and uh, get those hands in motion doing things related to reconnecting with Blue Mind helping these baby turtles get to the ocean or whatever the activity is that is in service of our, our own health and wellness as well as the health and wellness of the planet. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. 